Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this Q&A program, you'll meet Johnny Bertka, the executive director of the American Conservative. We talk about the history of the conservative movement and about a special edition of their magazine, which examines the movement's relevance in the age of Donald Trump. John Bertka, executive director and acting editor of the American Conservative. Uh, this summer, you've got a special issue of your organization's magazine asking the question, what is American conservatism? Tell me about this project. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Susan. Um, I conceived of the project because there's a lot going on in our country right now, and it's unsettling times for uh, a number of Americans. Um, everything having to do with the uh, COVID crisis, to the lockdowns, to the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent protests and riots, and uh, the presidential election. So a lot of people are taking the opportunity to really re-examine first principles and trying to figure out where we stand as a nation and people on the right uh, as the uh, end of the president's term um, comes into focus are asking themselves, what is conservatism? Has the president made an impact on the overall trajectory of the conservative movement and of the Republican Party? And so I wanted to take this opportunity uh, to re-examine those fundamental questions. And back in uh, 1964, there was a seminal book that was dubbed the Federalist Papers of Conservatism by Jonah Goldberg, um, which examined um, the, the definition of conservatism. And it was put together by Frank Meyer, Bill Buckley, Russell Kirk, a lot of the conservative luminaries. And it came out in 1964, about six months before um, the presidential election, when Barry Goldwater was the Republican candidate. And it was designed uh, to really be a book to pull together disparate strands on the right and uh, hopefully bring them into one camp that would eventually coalesce into a vibrant political movement. Uh, it didn't succeed in 1964, but they did succeed at least at the ballot box uh, with the election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, so I feel like we're in a time of transition uh, on the right right now, and we're figuring out where we're going to go. And it might not translate uh, into uh, an electoral victory in November, but really what we're doing is looking at the bigger picture and sort of examining the roots of where America should go as a country and what conservatism has to say about that. 
If uh, one searches top conservative magazines on the Internet, uh, there's a group called Thought, Thought Company, which ranked your publication number three and wrote this description. It's the magazine for the disenfranchised conservative, the one who is uncomfortable with the rash of false conservatives who have come to dominate the movement. Does that definition square with how you think of yourselves? I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, we were founded in 2002 as a group of conservatives that were opposed to the war in Iraq, uh, that wanted to advocate for realism and restraint in American foreign policy. And at the time, that went against the grain uh, of Republicans in D.C., specifically those connected to the, the Bush administration. The founding purpose, though, was really even broader than foreign policy. It was to reexamine uh, the questions that we had been, we believed had been ignored uh, by elites in both parties since the end of the Cold War. There's sort of a, a confidence, maybe a hubris in the end of history after the Cold War. And so we wanted to reexamine questions not only relating to uh, foreign policy, but also relating to the economic structures in our country. Um, we wanted to, you know, essentially advocate for a conservatism in an America that promotes a healthy middle class and strong and vibrant local communities and families. Um, so we've continued to do that. And I would say that uh, with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, we've been able to to shift from being a gadfly, uh, sort of off on the side, who, who's sort of critical of um, where things are, uh, to being more of a, a major player in terms of participating in the national conversations. Because uh, with, with the election of Donald Trump, uh, interestingly enough, at least in the conservative intellectual world, uh, reopened a, a host of new questions, particularly on foreign policy, political economy, that has allowed us a real opportunity um, to shape the future of the right. How are you organized and funded? Uh, we're funded by, by donor-supported pro uh, predominantly, so 90, 92% of our revenue comes from donors. Uh, we have a $2.5 million budget. Um, we produce uh, the print magazine six times a year. We have about 30 stories a week on the website. And then we also do a number of educational programs. We have about 10 conferences and panel events a year across the country on different issues that we focus on in the magazine. And then we also have a constitutional fellows program that we host for young and mid-career professionals uh, on the Hill. And who are some of the people that uh, our viewers would recognize who are associated with the American conservative? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great question. Um, so in terms of our advisory board, we have um, Fox News host Tucker Carlson is on our advisory board. We have uh, Yuval Levin, who's a scholar at uh, the American Enterprise Institute. We have David Azarad of, Her of Hillsdale College. Uh, and we've got a, sort of a nice mix. We have our founders, Pat Buchanan, Scott McConnell, um, and a number of other voices that we've pulled on along the way. In your essay in contributing to this seminar, uh, you go through a, a brief history of the modern conservative, American conservative movement. And I want to do some of that with you as well during our, our hour together. Um, I also want to talk to you a little bit about your own personal journey to conservatism. But you wrote, and it caught my attention, before we can understand the nature of American conservatism and its relevance for today, we must first define what we mean by America and what we mean by conservatism. Okay, so I'll bite. Let's start with conservatism. What is okay. it? Yeah, so to me, conservatism is an active thing. It's a practice uh, more than it is an idea. 
And uh, from my perspective, conservatism is the practice of conservation and cultivation. Uh, so then the question is, what, of course, are we conserving? Uh, and as Americans, I think that it's it's conserving uh, the, the great traditions throughout our country's history. Uh, and that goes back to the founders. Um, and even before that, um, to the first settlers that came to this country. Uh, but it also goes back to the, the great statesmen. I think there's been a tendency within conservatism to say that that uh, conservatism or America is, is only an idea. And it's an idea that we can replicate and export uh, all over the world. And unfortunately, we've attempted to do that through our foreign policy uh, quite often, and it's gone awry. So I think conservatism uh, is more than just an idea. It's really uh, the stories and the people um, that have that have taken part in the wonderful history that we have here in America. And it also stretches back to the, the Judeo-Christian uh, foundations of Western thought um, and Greco-Roman traditions going all the way back to uh, from Aristotle to Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, all the way throughout uh, the medieval tradition and uh, culminating in uh, in America. And how do you define America? How do I define America? Well, I think it's it's important to understand that America, as I said, it's not only an idea, it's also a place. And it's a place that we call home and it's a place that we love. And there are, um, you know, think ba- basically... Um, you know, it's 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 a place and it's an experiment in uh, ordered liberty and virtue. And uh, we've had successes and failures throughout our history. Uh, we've seen the scope of government uh, grow and uh, contract for small periods of time. And I think the the important thing when we're looking at America from a conservative perspective uh, is the goal is to really take the best of our traditions and apply them to the future. So it's not only a a backwards-looking exercise. It's really a forward-looking exercise, trying to cultivate the ideas from the past and uh, implement them now in order to have a more uh, just, equitable, virtuous, and, and free society. Well, on that note, you also wrote that the first task of conservatives is to take stock of the country as it is, not as they imagine it to be. What are you saying there? Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at there is uh, much of the conservative uh, movement has had the goal of of dismantling uh, the New Deal programs uh, that were started under FDR uh, because they they inevitably led to uh, what conservatives like to call the administrative state uh, or the fourth branch of of government that's that's uh, unelected and unaccountable to the people in a direct sense. Uh, and I think there are very much legitimate criticisms to make of the New Deal and criticisms to make of the administrative state. But I think the challenge is uh, that our country has, uh, that this sort of our, our system of government as it is today has really been in place and evolved, you know, over the last hundred years. So I really don't think that the administrative state is going anywhere, uh, despite the despite conservatives' best efforts. And I also think that the, the task of sort of um, pushing power back to the states uh, is is a is a daunting one and I, I think it's something that we should continue working on but I don't think that's I don't think that's the full task of conservatism so I think conservatives also need to look at where it's appropriate to use the the structures that as it exists today um, to serve conservative ends so a, a couple areas that I'd like to focus on are strengthening the American family 
um, finding finding ways to support working mothers and fathers, whether that's through things like paid family leave policies or other policies to promote family formation. I think trade uh, trade policy and economic policy are two other areas. Um, I think the costs of uh, globalization over the last 30 years certainly has come with some benefits, but I think the cost has been uh, stagnant middle-class wages um, and in downward mobility for a lot of Americans, which leads to civil unrest and populist discontent on the right and left. So I think that's especially important to re-examine vis-a-vis China and their their growing influence in the world today. Uh, And I also think we, we have to take a look at um, the tech monopolies and the concentrated power that we have on Wall Street today. And uh, traditionally speaking, conservatives have, have liked to um, uh, cut taxes, which again, I understand there's lots of probably red tape that shouldn't be there. But generally speaking, um, conservatives don't really get, tr- at least traditional conservatives, don't really get a lot in return. You know, the sig- one of the signature achievements of the Trump presidency was the corporate tax cut, but it's really the the corporations that are leading the charge in terms of uh, a social agenda um, that is is very much at odds with a traditionalist conservative perspective. So I would say the bargain that uh, conservatives have struck with with Wall Street and with um, the, the libertarian influence on the right hasn't always translated into protecting and preserving faith, family and local communities. So I think it's it's time that there's some reexamination done on the right. And I think, um, you know, the uh, limited government and um, just pushing back against all things government is uh, is there's something to it. But I think it's an incomplete picture. So I think we need to take stock of all the influences that are currently exerting themselves on our country and really formulate a strategy that can strengthen the things we hold dear. And, And again, I think that's a strong middle class vibrant families and uh, a path to uh, upward mobility for all Americans. Well, as you uh, listen to your list of of important topics, it sounds like there's some real common ground with progressives. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Do you differ on the on the prescription? Yeah, I think the uh, you know, I think when we're, you know, looking at uh, the overlap between progressives and conservatives, um, particularly on sort of the populist right today, there's there's a bit of an overlap. And I think the uh, progressives are very good at uh, identifying uh, problems that are really hurting the country. I think Bernie Sanders was great at identifying very real problems that are holding America back and keeping Americans down. I think it's more a difference in terms of the solutions uh, to those problems. Uh, but yeah, I'm certainly... Uh, open to dialogue with progressives on what the problems are. And that's something that we've done quite a bit, uh, particularly on foreign policy uh, throughout our magazine's history. When you were d- describing what conservatism means to you, you talked about the a need to or a desire to conserve uh, the ideals of the founders. And, and I'm wondering what you think about the energy within the Black Lives Matter movement to re-examine our founding fathers and their role in the system that they set up of government? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Certainly a timely one with everything going on in the country. I, where I'm coming from uh, is I think that it's, it's, it's important that we take an honest look at American history. And uh, 
there seems to be two tendencies right now. There's a tendency on the left to say that that American history needs to be erased. You know, looking at the 1619 Project, sort of the animating idea, or at least one of them, is that the American Revolution was fought to preserve slavery, essentially. And so the tendency on the left is is to cancel America and to sort of erase or break from the past and to start over again. Uh, and the, there's a tendency on the right to basically say uh, America is perfect. Uh, the founding was ordained by God, divinely inspired. Our country's never done anything wrong. It's a great place. I don't know what you're complaining about. So I think the, the answer um, it, I think it, it lies somewhere in between. I, I think we have a history and tradition that can be pro- that we can be proud of. I think um, if you go back and examine the principles that animated the American founding, principles in the Declaration of Independence, the idea of equal justice and liberty under the law, the inherent dignity of each uh, human person, uh, I think there's a lot uh, in our American tradition that people who care about justice would do well to study and learn from and sort of bring that to bear in creating a more just society today. So I think the conservative disposition, as I mentioned, you know, it's about conservation and, and cultivation. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a quote that says, you know, the individual is foolish, but the species is wise. And I think that's, that's a very important lesson that even from our vantage point today, um, we, it's easy to look back and see everything that the founders did wrong, but it's harder to see where our own blinders might be today. So I think the genuine, the, the general posture that we ought to have towards history is one of deference. Uh, however, it's the, the cultivation aspect of conservatism where we take those best traditions from the past and cultivate them and steward them for today. And th- that doesn't preclude a reexamination of the historic legacy of slavery and its impact on America today. But I think it's it's about an approach to history. Uh, and I think there's a stark difference there between conservatives and um, and progressives right now. When you look at the list of contributors to your symposium on the state of American conservatism, there's only two women's names. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering, as a jumping off point for that, the question about the people of uh, various demographics who participate in the conservative movement, is it inclusive enough for your satisfaction? I think it could certainly be more inclusive. Uh, When I was reaching out uh, to people to write for the symposium, I initially sort of, uh, you know, gravitated towards those who are the editors of magazines and publications on the right today or those who led think tanks or institutions and, and most of them on the right tend to be, as you mentioned, t- uh, tend to be males and they tend to be uh, older. I, uh, so I think, you know, I think it's in, in terms of a successful long term project, I think uh, conservatism would do well to cultivate more voices from from uh, more diverse backgrounds. I think that's definitely something to work on. How does that happen? How does that happen? Uh that's a really good question. Um, I think it, I mean, I, I think it comes down to, ultimately it comes down to relationships. Uh, I think it's, it's less uh, a result of uh, an intentional effort to exclude women uh, or uh, blacks, you know, Hispanics in the conservative movement. I think it, I think it really comes down to relationships and people 
uh, tend to congregate with people that uh, think like they do, act like they do, and travel in similar social circles as they do. Uh, so I think it, it really probably sprung up more organically in that respect. So I think, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the best place to start is by being intentional about cultivating relationships with people that, that might not be in the current sort of group of conservative intellectual thinkers and sort of bringing them on board that way. As you did in the magazine, uh, I, I wouldn't wanted to, and I mentioned, go through a, a very brief history of some of the the uh, stages of American conservatism as in the United States during the 20th century. It had its roots in the mid-20th century. Tell me how it got started. So conservatism really, uh, as a as a intellectual and political movement, really began as a pushback against uh, collectivism and against the New Deal, um, seeing it as a uh, violating constitutional principles and uh, uh, sort of a, an overgrowth of, of government. Uh, and then it began to morph with the, the challenge that we had uh, against communism overseas and seeing the influence of uh, communist thought, uh, particularly on American intellectuals and an American publication. So it really started off as this uh, sort of a, a quirky intellectual movement uh, with a few, you know, political figures pushing back against collectivism at home uh, and abroad. And uh, really some of the, the seminal moments were the uh, publication of Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, uh, which uh, famously did not try to sort of pigeonhole a narrow or an ideological definition of conservatism, but took examples of conservative statesmen throughout uh, history and uh, basically um, painted uh, more of a conservative disposition than an ideology. Uh, and then you, of course, had the founding of National Review magazine um, back in 1955 by William F. Buckley Jr., uh, which really began to sort of uh, bring these diverse camps uh, into into play. And it wasn't wasn't only those pushing up pushing back against um, big government or the Soviet Union. You also had uh, traditional and religious conservatives uh, that uh, tended to have not only a social conservatism, uh, but also uh, uh, many of them were Catholic. So they had sort of a, a sense of, of piety for, um, uh, you know, the great saints and teachers throughout church history. So you had the, the, the economic uh, conservatives in one camp, you had the social and traditional conservatives in another camp, uh, and then you had the the foreign policy uh, hawks that were concerned about the Soviet Union in another camp, and then you also had uh, disaffected um, people from the left uh, who were concerned particularly about um, the Soviet Union and the Cold War, uh, who are now called neoconservatives, people like Irving Kristol and uh, commentary magazine when that was uh, founded, uh, fusing into the conservative movement that really coalesced around the Reagan presidency. You mentioned some of the founding lights of American conservatism. I want to show people uh, two of them that you just mentioned so we can see and hear some of these people and hear their thinking. Let's begin with a clip from Russell Kirk later on in his life, June 4th, 1980. This is from the C-SPAN archives. Let's watch. American intellectual renewal of conservative ideas, beginning around 1950, was perfectly unorganized and undirected. The work of isolated individual scholars and men of letters, only slightly acquainted with one another's work, 
let alone enjoying personal acquaintance. Take the names of men whose books obtained some attention, perhaps as novelties, shortly before or after 1950. Richard Weaver, Daniel Boorstin, Peter Virick, Francis Wilson, William Buckley. When I published my book, The Conservative Mind, in 1953, I had never met any of these gentlemen except Weaver, nor had they met one another, with but few exceptions, I believe. Besides, uh, no two of them agreed perfectly about anything, not even about the word conservative. Talking about how this movement really got its starts, but how important was his book, The Conservative Mind, to the genesis of the movement? Uh, incredibly important. I, most people attribute it to being the founding of the conservative intellectual movement uh, in America. Uh, as he mentioned, uh, at the time, there really were uh, quite disparate voices, uh, and many of the people didn't even know each other. So I think this was the first systematic attempt uh, to bring together a diverse array of thinkers, uh, historic figures, um, and talking about sort of what, uh, as a body of work, conservatism is and uh, hopefully trying to apply it to what it might mean or might become uh, in America. What was the relationship between the conservative intellectuals and the president of, uh, presidency of Dwight Eisenhower, both President Eisenhower and Richard Nixon? Mm. Um, with it, uh, the relationship between Eisenhower and the conservatives was uh, tenuous. I believe there's a an Eisenhower quotation that that I can paraphrase, where um, he essentially thought that uh, people on the right who are trying to uh, dismantle or do away with things like Social Security or other government programs, um, he thought that they were uh, utopian in their outlook, um, mostly because he said these are these are programs that your ordinary Americans, middle class Americans, working class Americans. They like them. They provide an extra degree of security and support. They have been um, embraced uh, in the American consciousness, and it would be political suicide for any uh, any politician, no matter what the party, Republican or Democrat, to try to um, to try to remove or dismantle um, those programs. So I thought I think um, while while Eisenhower would certainly probably, you know, agree with certain conservative dispositions. I think the political attempt to undo um, uh, various welfare programs, he was highly skeptical of. Uh, in terms of Richard Nixon, I, there's a, a Buchanan, Pat Buchanan, uh, who had worked uh, in the Nixon administration, was asked uh, by, I believe it was by Bill Buckley, but it was someone at National Review, you know, are, are you the conservative movement's representative to the Nixon administration, or are you the Nixon administration's representative to the conservative movement? And he said he was the latter. Um, so I, I think the, the relationship between the, the, those two presidents and the formalized conservative movement uh, was a bit uh, tenuous. How, how important was Senator Robert Taft to the conservative movement in the 1950s? Uh, he was very, very important. Um, he was, you know, held up as a, a model and an ideal statesman, uh, you know, pushing back against, uh, you know, a, a, um, a more aggressive approach to American foreign policy. He was a staunch defender of, you know, individual liberties, constitutional government. Um, so I think to many people uh, in the conservative movement and certainly to many people at the American conservative, he's a, 
uh, a model that uh, we've held in, in high esteem. You mentioned William F. Buckley. We have a clip from him from 2002. Let's listen and we'll talk about his legacy in the conservative movement. Fundamentally, uh, a, a liberal is less anchored than the conservative in what we like to think of as <clears throat> central and fixed ideas <clears throat> having to do with um, liberty and uh, with uh, order, with transcendence. Uh, the liberal fancies himself a, a more empirical, less tied down to uh, any orthodoxy, and uh, very hospitable to the idea of the state being used as an instrument by which to make um, human progress. Well, first of all, on his point, liberals are less anchored than conservatives. Do you agree? Uh, I do not agree uh, with that sentiment um, in, in, the, in one sense. Uh, I don't agree because in, at least liberals today, may, maybe at the time, uh, I think the statement would be true. Uh, but today, I think so much defense of you know, a neutral public square where uh, diverse voices can engage in, in free speech and open debate. Uh, I think there's very much a positive ideological component driving uh, liberalism today in America. And I think there's a, whether it, whether it comes to uh, sexual ethics or whether it comes to a view of America's history and America's founding, I don't think it's, it's, it's liberal in the classical sense anymore. I think there actually is a sort of a, an anchored positive ideology. It's one that I disagree with, and I think it's one that, that is counter to a conservatism that really anchors itself in history and tradition. But I certainly think that there is a, an anchor uh, behind uh, how the left sees the world today. And what is William F. Buckley's legacy to the movement? Uh, well, I mean, his, his legacy is that he... Uh, he ran and founded, you know, the most in influential conservative publication of, of the 20th century that exerted a great deal of influence um, on Republican politics. Um, so in that sense, I think it's it's a positive legacy. Um, but at the same time, I think there are some pitfalls. I think he overemphasized the importance of uh, politics and electoral victories uh, at the expense of um uh, other cultural uh, concerns. I think uh, the uh, the magazine National Review towards the end of his life, I know that uh, Buckley came to regret uh, supporting the, the war in Iraq, but uh, you know, he and his, his magazine in some sense uh, led the charge of um, uh, leading the United States or encouraging the United States um, to pursue regime change in Iraq. Uh, they may not have been as, as um, uh, unified in their support of the Iraq war as, as Bill Crystal and the Weekly Standard, but I think they were certainly um, complicit in that and also complicit in, in sidelining uh, dissenting conservative voices throughout um, throughout the history of the conservative movement. And I think if, if they were slightly less ideological and had been more open both intellectually um, and also in terms of dissenting voices, uh, Buckley's legacy would be more positive today. I think you could see, in some sense, the election of Donald Trump as a repudiation of the, the fusionist synthesis that Buckley championed uh, at 
uh, National Review. You see today on the right, uh, you know, a shift away from free trade in, in terms of um, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, supporting more of an economic nationalism or economic patriotism. Uh, you see a greater skepticism of foreign interventionism. Uh, and you see more concern not only about big government, but also about big business. And uh, those in many respects run counter to Buckley's legacy at, at National Review. Now, at the same time, I, I think he, he was also a brilliant uh, intellectual and a scholar and a writer. Um, so if he were if he were around today, I also think he um, he would adapt to the times and to the new challenges. And I hope he would be um, less perhaps ideologically rigid uh, than some people would like to think. You mentioned his emphasis on the ballot box. Uh, the, the conservative movement got its first run at the White House in 1964 with the campaign of Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. We have the clip, uh, a much a well-known clip from his acceptance speech in 1964. Let's listen and we'll come back to you. Let our republicanism so focused and so dedicated not be made fuzzy and futile by unthinking and stupid labels. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. People saw Richard Nixon listening in as he gave that acceptance speech. What does that quote mean to you today? Yeah, well, that's uh, it. Certainly, is a is a is a powerful quote. Um, I think there are there are some some flaws with it, though. I, I think the uh, the the mindset I, I think well first I think the the flaw from a conservative perspective is that prudence is really the the um, the pinnacle of, of virtues when it comes to uh, conservatism and so extremism uh, you know in, in pursuit of liberty um, is is a bit of an oxymoron I think um, it, it's important to have strong convictions have a clear sense of where you want to go as a culture and a society. But I think ultimately, uh, extremism, as he describes, it needs to be tempered with prudence. And uh, also, um, you know, what's actually politically possible. And obviously, it, in terms of the winning the election, that that message didn't quite work for him. Now, at the same time, it did spur a intellectual and political movement um, that was later taken up by Ronald Reagan, who I think was a far more effective messenger in terms of packaging the ideas of liberty that certainly Goldwater held dear. Um, but but he made them not sound extreme, but he made them sound uh, palatable and even attractive to ordinary middle class Americans. So I think that was Reagan's virtue. Uh, and uh, I, I, yeah, so that's that's where I would take that quote. Well, let's listen to Ronald Reagan and his inauguration address, uh, first inauguration address in January 20th, 1981, and uh, hear how he described his goals. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. 
it is time to check and reverse the growth of government, which shows signs of having grown beyond the consent of the governed. It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. Johnny Burtka, how did Ronald Reagan govern versus his ideals that brought him to office? Hmm. Well, I think he, he found out that it's, it's uh, a lot harder to um, scale back the uh, the federal bureaucracy in Washington uh, than he may than he may have thought. I don't think he was naive about the monumental challenge that he was up against, and he certainly you know cut taxes and uh, used deregulation and other things to uh, free and unleash the economy in a way that I think was uh, quite successful. But I think in terms of taking a look at the the uh, federal government, the bureaucratic apparatus, and really making meaningful reforms, uh, I think he came up a bit thin. And I think that's because the the administrative state has a, has a life of its own, and it has entrenched uh, bureaucratic interests, uh, and Congress is, is um, uh, not as... Um, they're content passing off a lot of their legislative responsibilities to the administrative state, and I think even uh, even someone as, as great as Ronald Reagan um, ultimately wasn't, he, he was successful in terms of, of, of the modest, well, certainly in foreign policy uh, with uh, communism and the end, end of the Cold War, he was successful. But in terms of really reining in uh, the power of the federal government, I think he, he certainly helped to delay uh, expanding growth, but it, uh, he wasn't able to stop it, let alone uh, cause it to go into retreat. It became known as the Reagan Revolution, but you write that in the decades after the Reagan administration, American conservatism became unmoored from its intellectual forebears. What are you seeing there? Well, I think it lost the glue that held it together. Um, so you had, as I mentioned before, the, the different coalitions, the foreign policy hawks, uh, the social conservatives, and then the economic libertarians. Uh, and I think political coalitions form primarily on account of uh, external threats. So you have people uh, banding together who find themselves more like each other uh, than the people that are opposing them. So they come together, they work on a joint project, uh, and they succeeded. But after that uh, success happened, um, I think they lost the the, the villain uh, that really uh, kept them all in the same camp together. Uh, so I think you saw after that a search uh, essentially for a new boogeyman to hold the conservative uh, coalition together, which I think is was a mistake, uh, because I think it's perfectly fine for uh, disparate groups to come together to achieve a specific purpose, and then after uh, that purpose is achieved, for them to, to go their separate ways and maybe form new coalitions with new groups. Uh, but you saw, um, you know, after 9-11 and the war on terror and the war in Iraq, I think there was a, an attempt to make... Um, uh, Islamic terrorism, uh, the new Soviet Union, the new glue that could hold together um, the disparate conserv uh, conservative coalition. Uh, and I think that ended up being a failure, uh, not because something, you know, something needed to be done about 9-11, but I think the response uh, was uh, to, to look for a new uh, 
a new monster that could could really unite people together and it turned out uh, not not working out so well that didn't work out well for the over 500,000 uh, Iraqis that ended up losing their life and it didn't work out for the um, the population of Christians in Iraq there's actually around 1.3 million Christians in Iraq prior to the war and uh, now there's there's only about 300,000 left um, many of them were, were displaced or moved and some of them were certainly um, killed um, so I think that that's this is a case where there's a zeal to find something to hold the coalition together, a zeal to find an enemy that's threatening America. Uh, but it really uh, lacked uh, humility and also the 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 um, the prudence exercise of prudence. Because when you take a look at the world, this is what I had mentioned before about seeing the world as it is. Um, oftentimes. Um, you know, you're, you may have a situation where you have a dictator like Saddam Hussein and people really suffering um, beneath that dictator, um, but overthrowing the dictator ends up leading to anarchy, which ends up being far worse for the people than they were originally. So I think uh, that's where the principles of humility and prudence really come into play. Um, so I, I think looking forward now, it's, it's interesting seeing can there be anything that that holds this conservative coalition together? And is that really the right way to be thinking about things on the right? So before we bring this conversation into today, I wanted to learn a little bit more about yourself. You talked earlier about the, the need to bring more young people into the movement. How did you get involved? How did you when did you first decide you were a conservative? Yeah, for me, it really began uh, with my family upbringing. Uh, my parents and my father worked in the uh, auto industry in, in Detroit. And uh, when the auto industry ended up going south, he took, took our uh, life savings and poured it into a, a small business. He actually uh, had the courage to start a small uh, winery in Michigan, which is a thing. There's actually over 100 wineries in the state of Michigan uh, right now. So I sort of began to learn the conservative uh, conservative principles really instilled through my family, through uh, entrepreneurship and uh, localism, involvement, engagement in the local community and our local church, um, and uh, worked there pretty much every weekend from when I was 12 years old behind the counter uh, all the way through college. And then uh, when I went to uh, college, uh, ended up going to Hillsdale College, which um, is is pretty well known as one of the um, uh, more conservative uh, universities in the country. Uh, funny enough, when I first arrived at Hillsdale, I knew very little about the conservative uh, intellectual tradition or really even about um, uh, the Western heritage. And it was at Hillsdale that I had the opportunity um, really for the first time to do a deep study of the great books uh, going all the way back uh, to Aristotle um, and all the way up to the founders in contemporary American history. So Hillsdale was really the uh, transformational experience in terms of intellectual conservatism. Uh, from there, I ended up studying theology in uh, France for a year in Provence, uh, was able to practice my French skills a bit, and then came back um, to the United States uh, on the East Coast and decided that I wanted to get back plugged into the conservative intellectual movement. And uh, Dr. Arne, the president of Hillsdale, helped me to get my first job uh, at ISI, which interestingly enough, uh, ISI was an organization also founded by William F. Buckley Jr., um, dedicated to promoting the conservative intellectual tradition on college campuses throughout the country. 
And it was when I was at ISI um, doing fundraising, helping to um, find uh, donors that would support conservative journalists. Uh, that's where I discovered the American conservative because I was reading nearly every conservative publication and raising funds to place uh, student journalists and uh, recent graduates at those publications uh, that the American conservative really uh, jumped out to me as, as one conservative publication that was um, uh, unafraid and uh, willing to sort of buck the trends of the Republican Party and uh, see things uh, through fresh eyes. So that's what drew me to the American conservative. And I started out overseeing the development side of things. And then my, my role has grown and expanded. Um, so that now I'm overseeing the whole thing as executive director and acting editor. We have uh, in our video library uh, the president of Hillsdale, Larry Arn, from September of 2016, talking about its course of study. I'd like to show that to our audience so they can learn a little bit more about the education you received there. The subject matter of the college is the ultimate things, the ends of life, the things for which we live our lives. And uh, those are things that are identified in the classical and medieval and renaissance literature and some modern literature as being the things that are good simply for their own sake and there's nothing you could add to them that would make them better. I teach Aristotle's ethics here and I love to teach that as much as anything I teach. And the kids love it. All the kids read the first book of the Nicomachean Ethics before they come here for their freshman year. And it's required. Then, yeah, you got to send them a book uh-huh. and uh, read this, you know. And, uh, and then the rest of the four years is to come to understand what that and things like that mean, including in the natural sciences, which are very strong here. American higher education has tended in the last couple of decades towards a practical skill building rather than foundational learning. Uh, when you left college, uh, how did you feel that this kind of education supported you for the life you wanted to lead? Thanks. That's a, that's a great question. Well, I mean, I felt like my education at Hillsdale really gave me a, a comprehensive, but not exhaustive, a comprehensive understanding of the human person, uh, the dignity of the human person, and also our place uh, within the greater um, context of American history and Western history. So I, I left um, I left college uh, not with a uh, particular skill set in terms of job skills, but with a greater perspective to uh, understand, you know, what the human person is, what is what is the good, what is the purpose of, of human life and life together in society. And, and one lesson that I drew, especially from Dr. Arn's Aristotle class, which he mentions, is the, uh, the idea that um, where there is justice, friendship is still needed, but where there is friendship, uh, Justice, justice is is, uh, is is not needed because friendship, people who are friends with each other end up treating each other justly. And I think that's one of the great challenges that our country is going through now. Uh, there's an understandable push for justice. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, given the, the atomization and the sort of the isolation that has been uh, part of American society um, uh, for the last 10 or 20 years, thanks in large part to technology, but which is now exacerbated by um, the virus and the, the subsequent shutdowns, um, I think it's important to remember that that it's it's really friendship that holds cities together and holds countries together 
Uh, and if we had a greater emphasis on that, we would do do better as a people. So I really left Hillsdale feeling like I was equipped uh, to do anything uh, and learn anything and take on any challenge that, that might come my way. And thanks to uh, mentors and people like Dr. Arn, people have been uh, willing to give me an opportunity to do that. And I've been able to grow in my career and my personal and professional life because of it. Well, let's spend our last 15 minutes uh, with uh, thoughts about today. What uh, do you see the 2016 election of Donald Trump as being all about? I think it's about uh, four things, really. I think, uh, first and foremost, it was about uh, the failures of American foreign policy and American empire for the past uh, 30 years. Um, President Trump on the stage in uh, South Carolina on the debate stage is probably the first Republican candidate to ever sort of publicly uh, denounced the war uh, in Iraq, maybe with the exception of Ron Paul, but that wasn't really taken uh, that seriously. He was written off by Rudy Giuliani. But so I think challenging um, the overreach of American foreign policy, I think uh, trade policy, specifically globalization in China and uh, the impact of, of losing, um, you know, 100,000 proximate uh, factories since China joined the World Trade Organization in uh, 2000. Uh, which ended up in many ways exacerbating things like the opioid epi- epidemic and sort of the sense of frustration and despair felt in, in many of the communities that once relied on those manufacturing jobs. I think it was about uh, immigration, um, particularly the impact that that mass immigration had on uh, driving down uh, working class wages and the frustration over that. And then I also think it was um, uh, about political correctness and uh, a fatigue that that ordinary Americans felt um, being lectured at by corporate America and by Hollywood. And I think um, Donald Trump, uh, despite the fact that he he was often uh, quite crude in his denunciations of political correctness, I think he hit a nerve in terms of challenging it. Uh, that so I would say it's that that constellation of those four issues that really led to his victory in 2016. Let's listen to Donald Trump in his inaugural address. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, It's going to be only America first. America first. Is America first consistent with conservative thinking? I think it depends how you define it, but I certainly think uh, it it, it can be consistent. And I do, I think it's a a healthy alternative to um, uh, George W. Bush's, you know, second inaugural address. Uh, which which had very much a sort of a utopian vision of uh, American military might bringing um, democracy uh, throughout the world, particularly in the Middle East. So I think if if America first um, means means that you know we still engage and have allies and friendly rela- friendly relationships with other countries, but we reprioritize our foreign policy decisions, our economic and trade decisions. Uh, decisions about uh, immigration, decisions about um, taking care of those who are suffering and those who are hurting in our own country uh, over the interests of 
global capital and over the interest of the military industrial complex, then I think America first rightly understood is, is very much consistent with conservative principles. You uh, mentioned how important it was uh, for friendship, which preceded justice for all. Donald Trump's Twitter feed and many of his speeches are very tough on his adversaries. Uh, how has that, do you think, worked to uh, advance the principles of the conservative movement? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, to, to me, the lesson to draw from Donald Trump is that uh, the policy, well, it's, it's, it's three, threefold, I guess. The policies, I, I think there's a debate sort of going on whether Donald Trump won because he was brash and his style of, you know, um, reality TV star and just sort of pulverizing his enemies. Is that what got him elected or was it actually the substantial issues that his campaign raised? And I fall in the, the second camp thinking it was really those those four issues that I mentioned and I think that would be the key to his victory uh, moving forward. I think one of the, the lesson, though, to draw from his style is that there is a large group of Americans who feel like they've been left behind. The president talked about American carnage in his uh, inaugural address. And I think a lot of people um, just want to go on thinking everything's great in the country and uh, haven't paid attention to that that silent majority of people. And I think those people are looking for someone who fights for them. So to the extent that Trump is combative, I think there is something that resonates about his willingness to fight. Uh, but I would say that it's it's um, uh, his style has become problematic where he relentlessly it attacks people. Uh, and it uh, oftentimes doesn't produce any political gain or any concrete victories for those people that supported him in 2016. So I, I think it's it's one of those things where I understand the importance of fighting for um, middle America. At the same time, I think you need to pick and choose your battles and you also have to show uh, charity because that's a uh, conservative principle and that's also a, a Christian principle. So I think it would be foolish for conservatives to jettison that. We have about five minutes left. Uh, as we look back over the 70 years or so of American conservative movement in this country. We uh, went to two charts which show the growth of government, both by the size of federal expenditures, and then also the growth of federal debt. Now, the problem with this is that it's just hard numbers. It doesn't say as a percentage of GDP, which I know is an important thing to do. But you can see that in both ca- in both charts uh, that the numbers keep rising as the decades go along. So I guess the question is, if the size of government has been a uh, as it been an organizing principle uh, of conservative movement, how effective has it been over the past seventy years? Uh, not very effective. <laughs> That's. Uh... Uh, uh, unfortunately, it's something that seems to to have a life of its own, and it, it continues to grow. And it seems like you can only slow the uh, expansion of debt and the growth of the federal government. You can't ever really reverse it. So I think this is something that conservatives really need to, to have a serious look at. I think I think slowing uh, and slowing the debt and coming up with strategies to to mitigate it is worthwhile. But I think conservative conservatism needs to be more than on one side growing the GDP and on the other side uh, reducing the federal debt. Right. Conservatism has to do with the human person. It has to do with culture, friendship and uh, local traditions. Uh, And there are a great many local traditions throughout America that are worth conserving and protecting. And it's about the family, too. And so I think 
sure, those things can be part of the conservative project, but if they're the only uh, reason for the project, then I think conservatism is a failure and deserves to be one. Well, uh, in this exercise that you're going through to re-examine American conservatism, you write that uh, throughout American history, uh, Americans have turned to the federal government during times of crises. Can American conservatism survive coronavirus, where people are looking to the federal government and state governments for solution? They're looking to big pharma to supply vaccines and medications, and we're looking towards more international cooperation to share results of study. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't have American conservatism without America. So there, there are certain situations, right, where there is a crisis, um, you know, that is that is so large. Um, Uh, that the federal government or the state governments need to take action. And in taking action, they're actually able to preserve uh, the country and the people who live there. So I I wouldn't be dogmatic about um, the need to use uh, political power in cases of emergency. Uh, However, I, I am also skeptical of whether or not that political power and the money that's expended actually goes, you know, to support working in middle class Americans and families. I think there's a tendency for bailouts to go to the large corporations, you know, in the form of cronyism and people who have the power to to lobby for the funds. So I would say in theory, I support using political power to address national crises. uh, But in practice, I'm skeptical of how it plays out. So I think we need to be careful to rush to use political power if there are other options on the table. The impetus for our conversation was the summer issue of the American Conservative Magazine, which you are now editing for your organization, and the seminar on what is American conservatism. You've kindly made a link available for C-SPAN viewers who want to see more of what you've done in this magazine. What will they find on that link? Who's there? So when they go to that link, they'll find uh, 22 thousand word essay responses to the question of what is American conservatism. We've got uh, the the overall sort of tone and consensus is really sort of tapping into some of the new things that I'm talking about going on in conservatism. But we have a diverse array of voices from people that are conservative nationalists to people that are conservative localists uh, to others who think that uh, conservatism and the conservative project is a failure. Um, to others who believe that conservatism is really about uh, a more Christian, humanistic vision of learning to love thy neighbor and practice charity. So we've got a great uh, spectrum, and I think it'll be really helpful for people looking to understand, you know, just what the heck is going on in conservatism since the election of Donald Trump, and what can we expect from uh, the conservative movement in the post-Trump years to come. And what do you hope will happen as a result of this exercise? Uh, well, I hope that uh, we, we can bring, uh, you know, more conservatives and more Americans generally of both political parties um, to support a policy agenda and a cultural agenda that strengthens the American middle class, that strengthens the American family, uh, that restrains uh, our utopian foreign policy, and that promotes a trade and economic policy that really can uh, support Americans. Um, so that's that's my goal. Mr. Burka, thank you very much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. 
And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.